Habakkuk chapter 3. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet. Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, O Lord. Renew them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Teman, the Holy One from Mount Paran. His glory covered the heavens. His praise filled the earth. His splendor was like the sunrise. Rays flashed from his hand where his power was hidden. Plague went before him. Pestilence followed his steps. He stood and shook the earth. He looked and made the nations tremble. The ancient mountains crumbled and the age-old hills collapsed. His ways are eternal. I saw the tents of Cushan in distress, the dwellings of Midian in anguish. Were you angry with the rivers, O Lord? Was your wrath against the streams? Did you rage against the sea when you rode with your horses and your victorious chariots? You uncovered your bow. You called for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. Torrents of water swept by. The deep roared and lifted its waves on high. Sun and moon stood still in the heavens at the glint of your flying arrows, at the lightning of your flashing spear. In wrath you strode through the earth, and in anger you threshed the nations. You came out to deliver your people, to save your anointed one. You crushed the leader of the land of wickedness. You stripped him from head to foot. With his own spear you pierced his head. When his warriors stormed out to scatter us, gloating as though about to devour the wretched who were living in hiding, you trampled the sea with your horses, churning the great waters. I heard, and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones, and my legs trembled. Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails, and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen, and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord, I will be joyful in God my Saviour, The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to go on the heights. Today, um, waterworks have already started, forgive me. Today is the third uh, and last message from a a mini-series in Habakkuk that we began in October. There's been a a passage of some weeks now uh, since we looked at Habakkuk. Now we're looking at chapter 3 to see what we can learn from this. And all the way through, what we have been considering is this. How do we, as the people of God, respond when life doesn't make sense? Uh, earlier I used the title, how, how, how do we respond when uh, painful prayers receive puzzling answers from a mysterious God? And that's slightly long-winded way of saying what other people have said better, how do we respond when life doesn't make sense? 
Before now, in the earlier chapters, we've encountered Habakkuk wrestling with God. He's been wrestling with God because he has had painful prayers. And we can just remind ourselves of the flavor of those prayers looking earlier on, right at the beginning of chapter 1 and verse 2, when Habakkuk prays, How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? That was Habakkuk's painful frame of mind. As we cast our minds back to the beginning of chapter 1, he's looking at his nation, his nation is in a mess, and he's praying to God, God, do something. Or he's got to the point where he's saying, God, why aren't you doing something? This nation is a state, and only you can change it. But you seem silent. Painful prayers. His painful prayers um, continue where later on, later on in in chapter 1, in verse 13, he says, Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? He's got painful prayers. Because he brought that initial prayer to God. And then God said, mysteriously, well, I am going to do something about this situation that is so bleak that is presented to you. I am about to intervene. And what I'm about to do is raise up the Babylonians. In other words, I'm going to raise up a ruthless nation that are hostile towards you who are going to invade. And you can kind of see how Habakkuk could have stumbled a bit at that. God, what what are you playing at? He's got some painful prayers. And so through the thread of it, he's, he's wrestling, he's He's coming to God because he knows only in God is he going to find answers. And he knows that God is holy, just, and pure. But he's coming to God with this this kind of wrestling. He's wrestling with God. He's he's arguing. He's complaining. He's effectively accusing God at certain times and questioning him. So when we turn to chapter 3 and read what we've just looked at, we realize... But something profound has taken place in Habakkuk the prophet. He, he's changed a lot. Before all that wrestling, now he's got a completely different approach to his God. He is adoring God. Lord, I have heard of your fame. He is standing in awe of God. He's praying to God. He's trusting God. And he's even rejoicing In God, a profound change has taken place inside Habakkuk. But in a sense, we might say, what what has changed? What has led to that transformation we see in him? What circumstance, what situation, what has happened that has led Habakkuk to that transformation? Now, almost, you can see there's, there's a peace and a tranquility, and a trust that there wasn't there before. So what's changed? Imagine that um, you can see before you um, a massive uh, football stand. So a stand full of football fans watching their team on the pitch. And, uh, but all that you can see are the spectators. All that you can see 
are the people who are watching the game. You, you can't see what's happening on the pitch. You can just see them. But you, you look at them and you realize things can't be going too well because they're all sat down. Some have got their head in their hands. Some people are drifting out, so obviously they've seen enough. Whatever is happening on the pitch, they've, they've seen enough. Maybe insults are getting hurled at the referee. And so it doesn't take much to deduce. The game's probably not going that well. Um, kind of like watching England. There are, I heard recently there are only two types of England football match. There is, there's the false dawn and there's the reality check. That's the only kind of football game that we have in our nation. Anyway, that's an aside. Um, so you look, at this, you look at this stand of football spectators and the scene looks bleak. And then, again, all you can see are the spectators. There's a massive roar. The fans are on their feet. Some are jumping. The whole place is bouncing. Grown men are hugging each other and a lot are waving their scarves. And they're, now they're, they're chanting the manager's name in a good way. And so you would, you'd assume, you would assume that something on the pitch has changed. Maybe that, you know, the team were 1-0 down, but then something happened. Some, out of nowhere, someone scored maybe an impossible goal, and the game's back on, and they go on to win, and everything's dramatically changed. That's the assumption you'd make. But for Habakkuk... Nothing has changed. It might be unfair, in a sense, to liken Habakkuk to, uh, to football spectators. The illustration's not perfect. But this change in, we see in Habakkuk has come about when nothing in his circumstances has changed. Absolutely nothing in the nation has got any better Whatsoever. If it was bleak before, it's still bleak. God is still raising up the Babylonians. The Babylonians are still on their way. And in fact, we could say nothing's changed, but in fact, things have got worse. Because we can see in verse 16, right at the end of verse 16, Habakkuk says, uh, Yet I'll wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. In other words, what God has said was going to happen is now happening. The Babylonians are invading. And so he, he looks across the landscape and he sees the landscape is completely scarred by warfare. The, the fig tree doesn't bud. There are no grapes on the vines. The olive crop fails. The fields produce no fruit There are no sheep in the pen, no cattle in the stalls. Um, It is a scene of complete barren devastation. No fruits, no meat, no food of any kind, no wool, no hide. And so therefore, there's, there's nothing to drink, there's nothing to eat, there is nothing to wear, and there is nowhere to hide. That is the situation that that, that presents itself to Habakkuk. An eminent theologian from uh, from the US has written this. The truth of the matter is that all we have to do... 
this is going to cheer you up. All we have to do, all we have to do is live long enough and we will suffer. Write that on your wall. Um, the truth of the matter is, all we have to do is live long enough and we will suffer. Now, it could be that for many people here, you've, you've just arrived at that point. Or when we were in Habakkuk uh, earlier on in October, you were aware of bleak situation. And since then, it's actually got worse, not improved. Or perhaps... Perhaps as you look back, your experience with the Babylonians may actually have been years and years ago. Almost a a point of suffering that has kind of defined things ever since. And uh, still left, maybe. Maybe Maybe the wrestling phase has gone. Maybe the arguing vociferously with God has now subsided. And, you know, sometimes people say, well, well, time is a healer, isn't it? To an extent, perhaps. But sometimes we could just be left with a, a sense of, oh, having experienced something at the hands of the Babylonians. That's why what we see now in chapter 3 is so, I would say, outstanding of Habakkuk. To see how Habakkuk responded now, in a sense, we've, we've picked up uh, hints and principles when we've looked at the earlier chapters. But this chapter 3, it really brings it home. What we see in Habakkuk is a, is a prophet who is praying, a prophet who is waiting, and a prophet who is rejoicing. And we're going to look at each of those three things. Remember, nothing has changed. Nothing has changed, and yet we encounter a prophet who is praying, a prophet who is waiting, and a prophet who is rejoicing. Let's look then at verse, verse 2. Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, O Lord. Renew them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. This Habakkuk is praying to his God. Now, he was praying before, but he was praying with all those with all those questions, with all that angst, with all that frustration, trying to work things through, kind of wrestling a bit. But he's praying with a completely different tone now. All those, all those why questions have now passed, and he's standing in awe of the Lord. He is still praying. He's bringing the nation before God, and he's making requests. But he's moved on now. All those All those why questions have now passed and he's standing in awe of the Lord. He is still praying. He's bringing the nation before God and he's making requests. But he's moved on now from that arguing and complaining and his frame of mind is now even one of adoration. This guy is adoring God even in the midst of life not making sense. And the question I have... I think this presents to us is, does understanding the sovereignty and providence of God discourage us from praying? In other words, knowing that God is in control of all history and the entire universe, does that encourage us to pray? 
Or does that discourage us from praying? The point is this, that's, what, that's the point that Habakkuk has arrived at. He's realized that everything that happens, even this Babylonian invasion, is under the authority and the control of God who is bringing about all world events according to his purposes. Could we be forgiven then for thinking, well, if God is in control of absolutely everything, is there any point in me praying about anything? Is, is prayer some kind of meaningless consultation exercise? And so some bigwigs, maybe the, uh, in charge of some community project or uh, bigwigs at work, they have, uh, they have some changes in mind. They, they have a, a plan in mind, a new project, and the done thing is to consult people first. And so you give them the impression that you care about what they say, but then you do whatever you wanted to anyway. And sometimes you can, you know, maybe you've had an experience like that, and you kind of get, you've, you've got that impression really. Or I'm being asked all the questions, but I'm not really sure what I say makes a blind bit of difference to what's about to happen. Um, we could think of prayer in that regard. Is God just going to do stuff anyway? And it's really got nothing to do with us. Well, Habakkuk's example would say otherwise, because he's praying. And other passages of scripture would indicate the same. Prayer, seeking our God, making requests and bringing our petitions before him, is never a meaningless exercise. God hears and God answers. Otherwise... In the book of James, we would not have these verses. In, in James chapter 1 and verse 5, uh, says this, If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. What a wonderful promise. That when we lack wisdom, we come to God, we pray, and he responds by giving it to us. Now, we could think one or two things. We could think, well, God knows that I need wisdom. Therefore, I'm not going to ask him for it. I'll just assume that I'm going to receive it anyway. And so we don't pray. Or we don't pray because we think, I need wisdom, but I don't think God's going to give it to me. I'll just have to make do with what I've got. But God is saying here, or encourages us with these promises, no, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God. We pray, God responds. Jesus says, ask and you will receive. Knock, the door will be opened, seek and you will find. God is in the habit of responding to prayer. And so that's why Habakkuk says, Lord, I've, I'd heard of your fame. I stand in awe of everything I know that you've done in the past now renew them. In a sense, he kind of reiterates his request three times. He says, renew them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. Habakkuk is engaging with God. He knows that God is in control of all history and the whole universe. But that doesn't lead him to kind of a, okay, sirrah, sirrah, whatever will be, will be. That's not exactly the motto of our prayer meetings, is it? We get together to pray. 
Because we believe God. We look back in the past, we see all the things that God has done, we, we've got amazing promises in the scripture, and we present them to our God saying, we know what you're like, God. You're a God of awesome deeds. Renew them in our day. We're not necessarily going to prescribe to God, do exactly this, 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 or this. We know that God in his wisdom might have solutions that we haven't yet thought of, but we're going to pray because we know God is sovereign and he is in control over all things. Habakkuk's request is that God would not forget or leave behind his fame and his deeds in the past, but instead, even in the midst of Babylonian invasion and disaster, God is, uh, Habakkuk is asking God to demonstrate his mercy again for the benefit of his name, for God's fame. So we encounter here a prophet who is praying. He's not dissuaded from seeking his God, even in the bleakest of situations. He knows, he knows the Babylonians are going to come. He knows that God is raising this all up. He knows that God's in control of all of that. And yet still we find this man praying and seeking God for his purposes to be done and for his great deeds to be repeated. I would put to us that we, ha- we have exactly, the, or should have exactly the same confidence that Habakkuk had. God is in the habit of bringing life. God is in the habit of doing surprising things. God is in the habit of breaking in to a situation that looked completely disastrous and ultimately bringing change. So we encounter a praying prophet. We also encounter a waiting prophet. It says in verse 16, I heard and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. Before, Habakkuk was impatient. Right at the beginning of chapter 1, he was praying out, How long, O Lord? How long? Now he's saying, I will wait patiently. He is he's now content to wait and trust that at some point in the future, God is going to stick to his word and turn the tables on the Babylonians who are worshipping themselves, who are trusting in their own strength and might, and who are demolishing vast swathes of the Middle East on their, nation, on their, on their kind of quest to, uh, to dominate and domineer. Habakkuk is saying, I know this is going to happen. I'm going to wait. I know ultimately, God you're going to turn this situation around. There might not be the the kind of convenient, painless revival that I was hoping for initially. I know you're still in control. You're still bringing about your purposes. And at some stage, the, the Babylonians will be judged because you're in charge. Another question then, how do we learn to wait like Habakkuk and trust in him? It's easy or it's easier, I should say, to wait for something when we know exactly when it's going to happen. So before long, I imagine many people in this auditorium will wake up giddy with excitement each morning as they open another window 
on their advent calendar because they know Christmas is coming. And so you can, you can, you can tick it off. If you're really lucky, you get to open the door and there's a little piece of chocolate there and you can uh, enjoy that. Though my experience is it's always of dubious quality, uh, the chocolate in an advent calendar. Anyway, giddy with excitement, we open the little door because we know that, okay, now it's the, it's the 1st of December. Oh, it's the 2nd of December. We're one day closer. And when we get to the 25th of December, we know it's Christmas. And that can be, it can be a frustrating wait to an extent, can't it? If you are really looking forward to Christmas, you know, you've still got pretty much a month to wait. Oh, well, it's still 15 days. It's not long, but it's still, ah, oh, it's a long time. But you know when it's coming. But what is it like for someone like Habakkuk and for many of us, for what you might be waiting for or trusting God for, when there's no date attached. We're waiting, but we don't know how long for. We don't know exactly when the turnaround is going to take place. And maybe for Habakkuk, he didn't even know if that was going to take place in his lifetime. And some of the turnarounds that we might be waiting for are actually maybe fulfilled by eternal life in heaven rather than things that will happen on this earth. How do we then learn to wait in those kinds of situations? Mainly, I'd say this. Let's not beat ourselves up when we tremble. And it might sound a little bit random. Habakkuk says he's going to wait patiently for the day of calamity. Before that, we've got these intriguing few lines where he says, I heard my heart pounded, my lips quivered, decay crept into all my bones, and my legs trembled. What on earth is he going on about? Why are those verses there? Why do we need to know that? I believe that we are... We have the benefit of Habakkuk honestly recording his body's response to hearing devastating news. In other words, he had physical reactions that he himself could not control. He didn't decide, heart, start pounding in an uncomfortable way. Lips, it's your turn to quiver. Bones, I've decided you should feel like decay is creeping into you and my legs should tremble. He, He didn't decide to do those things. That's what his body did upon hearing devastating news. He could not, as it were, just simply hear what God had told him and remain unmoved. He couldn't just receive it as information in some kind of cold, detached way. No, God's revelation went into his body, into his inner parts, and shook him. And he honestly recalls that. Why do we need to know that? I think it's for this reason. Even people of faith who are walking with God and trusting him can and sometimes will have a physical reaction to devastating news. Just because... But just because someone might react in those ways 
does not mean they've necessarily given in to fear or are not walking with God. What it means is we don't have to be superheroes to continue, to continue walking with God when disaster strikes. Or we don't, people of faith, people who want to walk with God and trust Him, we don't have to be of a certain temperament. We might be like Habakkuk. We might be thoroughly disposed to quake in our boots. We might be thoroughly disposed to tremble at the sound of devastating news. But that does not mean, or that does not equate to fear. Habakkuk is saying, this is what happened to my body, but I'm going to wait. He's not saying, this gives me no problems. I'm a man of steel, and nothing will damage me. He's a real man. His body reacts in a realistic way, and yet he's resolving to wait. Jesus told his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane, the flesh is weak, the spirit is willing, or the spirit is weak. Oh, hang on, sorry. (laughs) The spirit is willing. It's the flesh that's weak. It's interesting to notice that after he said that, in Mark chapter 14, verse 35. This is at the point where Jesus, I believe, has his own period of trembling. He is anticipating the horror of being crucified on a cross and being separated from his Father. And remember, Jesus has committed no sin, so there's never been a point at which he and God, weren't, he and God the Father weren't getting on. And, uh, and he was feeling a bit... Uh, convicted about stuff he'd done wrong. No, he'd always been in perfect relationship with his heavenly father. He's anticipating this point where he'll be on the cross in absolute agony, but also his heavenly father is going to turn his face away and he's going to be completely alone, absolutely rejected. And as he goes on a little further, he, he leaves his disciples, he goes on a little further, it says... He fell to the ground before he prays. I don't know, was Jesus just deciding this is the appropriate point, I suppose. I'm going to get down to the ground. I think he fell to the ground. I think bodily, there was an element in his human frame where Jesus trembled. He wasn't blithely looking forward to the cross as if it was just an inconvenience. That was devastating. Jesus fell to the ground. And why does that encourage us? How do we get comfort from that? Well, we know that Jesus was made like us, made like his brothers in every way, so that he could be a faithful high priest. He knows what it is to experience whatever we experience. He knows what it is. And so we have a high priest who is not unable to sympathize with the weaknesses that we know, with our moments of trembling. I was also very interested to to read this week about uh, something that C.S. Lewis wrote. Um, 
reflecting upon his own grief, reflecting upon devastating news, I suppose. His specific example of devastating news uh, was losing his wife. And at the beginning of his book called A Grief Observed, he said, no one ever told me that grief felt so like fear. I am not afraid, but the sensation is like being afraid. The same fluttering in the stomach, the same restlessness, the yawning. I keep on swallowing. At other times, it feels like being mildly drunk or concussed. And it makes this interesting contrast again. He says, I'm grieving. It feels like fear, but actually it isn't. It just has some of the same physical sensations. So for us, let's not beat ourselves up or try and give ourselves a certain temperament. I must act as if nothing's really the matter. I must pretend that I am a man or woman of steel who feels nothing. And I I glide through life unmoved by everything that takes place. We don't have to pretend to be like that. We can tremble. Our hearts can pound. Like Jesus, we could fall to the ground. And yet we can still be people who say, I'm going to trust in God in this. Nothing's improved in the circumstances. But I have God's word. And God's word tells me what I can hold on to and what I can trust in and what God will ultimately bring about. So even though calamity is striking, even though stuff is just falling away, I'm going to trust in God's word. I'm not going to beat myself up. I'm trusting in God and in his word. I'm going to get hold of every ounce of scripture I can every story of God breaking in, every one of God's great deeds, I'm going to remind myself of those things. And even though I'm disposed to shake like a leaf, I'm going to trust my God. So Habakkuk was a praying prophet. Habakkuk was a waiting prophet. He was waiting. He was trusting. He was believing in his God. He was also rejoicing. So we read again how in verse 18 he says, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I'll be joyful in God my Savior. And in a sense, this issue of Habakkuk rejoicing brings a question into kind of stark relief, I think. Are we being told, is is all of this recorded for us in the book of Habakkuk So we might say, that's interesting, good for him. Or is this chapter presenting us with something that is normal for Christian life? Is rejoicing in the midst of calamity something that Habakkuk was able to do, that we might in some way aspire to, but is really unrealistic? Or is it something that is representing normal Christianity. Or in other words, for us, can we really be expected to emulate Habakkuk's response in bleak times, remembering that nothing has changed? Can we be expected 
The New Testament has a lot to say about rejoicing. And it says things like this. If we look in, we'll just look at a few verses. If we look in Luke and chapter 6, and verse, well, we read from verse 22, where Jesus says, Blessed are you when men hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, because great is your reward in heaven, for that is how their fathers treated the prophets. There is in the New Testament a theme of rejoicing that here is not connected to things going particularly well. Jesus says, blessed are you when men hate you, when you're excluded, when you are insulted, when you're rejected. Rejoice in that day. Oh yeah, I get it. Or Philippians chapter 4 and verse 4, where Paul writes there to the believers there in Philippi, and he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Is this some kind of scriptural exaggeration? Is this kind of, some kind of biblical wishful thinking? Yeah, we, we all kind of think that's what Paul meant, but he was probably going slightly over the top. I'm not quite sure he expected us to go quite that far, but maybe he's making some oblique point to the fact that rejoicing from time to time is kind of fitting for the people of God. And 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 12. Peter writes there to believers who are suffering uh, persecution and painful trial, as he goes on to say, he says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that, when you, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Don't be surprised at the painful trials, but rejoice. I, is this normal Christianity? What is not... Rejoicing is normative. It is normal. Normal Christianity involves rejoicing. We see from those scriptures. We leave, we're left with another question. How, how do we rejoice? Okay, we, we need to find out a little bit more if we're going to go there. How do we rejoice? What is the secret of rejoicing? It's a secret that Paul had learned. We see in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, we see Paul there, he, he lists all of the horrendous situations that he has encountered in his, in his life, in his ministry, or at least some of them. And he mentions in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, a whole raft of them from 20, verse 23 onwards. He, he mentions, um, I've worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I've received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. 
I have been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false brothers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I do not feel weak? Now that is, that's Paul's account of the stuff that came his way. But elsewhere in that letter, he refers to our light and momentary troubles. What? He goes through all of that list. And in 2 Corinthians 4, um, verse 17, he speaks of our our light and momentary troubles. I think, I think we need to know a little bit more. What's going on here? How do we rejoice? What's the secret that Paul has learned? What's the secret that Habakkuk has learned? What really makes the difference when calamity strikes? What really makes the difference? What, what, what was it that changed this man? What transformed him from this wrestling, frustrated, slightly angry and perturbed prophet into one who can say, Lord, I've heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, O God. I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Saviour. I feel that the key, the key to understanding his response in large part is the verses that, in fact, you may have noticed we've not looked at a great deal yet. Verses 3 through to 15. What is happening there, it begins, God came from Teman, the Holy One from Mount Paran, and on he goes. What is he doing there? Incidentally, in what he's saying there, there are are more gems in verses 3 to 15 than we're going to be able to look at. This is just a broad brushstroke. What is that about? Habakkuk, most of his prayer is caught up in verses 3 to 15. And in effect, he's saying this. He's saying... Look what the Lord has done. It's all in very poetic and strange, maybe to our ears, strange language. But what he is doing in that section is saying he's reviewing the history of God's people. In other words, he's, he's reviewing all the things that God has done. All the times that God has stepped in to bring deliverance, or to bring salvation, or to bring a rescue, or to bring a massive turnaround that was perhaps unexpected. So, for example, we say, were you angry with the rivers, O Lord? Was your wrath against the streams? Did you rage against the sea? What is he talking about? He's talking about how God rescued his people from Egypt and then commanded the sea to separate so the people of God could walk through. Get another example in verse 11. Sun and moon stood still in the heavens. What's he referring to there? He's referring to the people of God, their experience under Joshua's leadership when the sun stood still in the sky so they had more daylight to go and rout their enemies. These are some of the things that God has done. That's what Habakkuk is saying to himself. Look what the Lord has done. 
Here are all of the ways that he has broken in time and time again into our lives. That's what leads Habakkuk into praise. But in a sense, we have it easier than Habakkuk. Habakkuk was living in the midst of that disaster, but we know how that ended. We know that the people of God did go into exile. We know that after 70 years, they came and they returned to to Jerusalem and the Jews were re-established in their own land. We know how the story develops. We know that the story didn't stop there. We know that a saviour came, the Lord Jesus came, born in a manger, an infant, but growing up, and he was given by his heavenly father to be for us a sacrifice upon the cross. We know that the story goes further. He lived that perfect life so that when he hung on the cross, he could absorb upon himself all of the righteous uh, wrath of God, all the punishments that we deserved by virtue of our sin and rebellion against God. And he, had, he took it all. And we know that he was laid in the tomb. And we know that the Lord Jesus accepted his, uh, the heavenly, God Almighty in heaven accepted Jesus' sacrifice of himself. And after three days was risen to new life so that we might know him. And I know what's happened in my life. And you know what's happened in your life. Because the story doesn't even stop there. It doesn't stop with the empty tomb. I'm involved in this. There was a point in my life when I went from being a rebellious, hostile teenager to being saved and brought into God's wonderful family. And I know the story doesn't end today either. I know what what we're dest- we know what we're destined for. We know that it doesn't end here, that we are destined for eternal glory that outweighs momentary troubles. That's the secret that Paul knew. That's what led him to contentment. That's what led Habakkuk to contentment. I know what God's like. He's a God who's a, who's a saviour. And so, yeah, we, we might be dealing with these kind of light and momentary troubles. They might be like that. But let's just take them over here for a moment. Our light and momentary troubles. And let's just imagine they're like that. In a sense, the the light and momentary troubles, they haven't changed. They're still pretty devastating, but they are outweighed by an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. That's what we're in. We are, as we were singing earlier, the people of God. And the people of God have a song. The people of God know how to rejoice when disaster strikes. Because whatever happens, nothing is going to change this eternal weight of glory. Nothing is going to change what my God is like. I'll be joyful in God, my Savior. The Sovereign Lord is my strength. My health isn't my strength. My success isn't my strength. Things going well in my family, that is not my strength. Having a nice home, that's not my strength. Having a reasonable amount of money, that's not my strength. All of those things can be taken away. Nothing takes away our salvation. Nothing outweighs the blessings that God has poured upon us. 
the problem of suffering can be looked at in two different ways. Often we can look at the problem of suffering and evil in the world or in our own experience in this way. We can say, or we can ask the question, if God is really as good as the Bible makes out, if he's really so holy and pure, if he's really so powerful and wonderful, why do we suffer horrendously bad things? That's one way of thinking about the problem of evil. But there is another way. And I think God would want to lead us to this second way. And I think it will do us more good to turn it round in this way. How is it if we are, as a race, really as bad and rebellious as the Bible makes out? Before coming to Christ, we were hostile. All we knew, knew how to do, in a sense, was to oppose God rather than please Him. If, we, if we're really as bad as the Bible makes out, how on earth, why on earth, does God bless us with such amazingly good things? Why is it that God chose to came down from heaven to earth to save us? That actually one day we'll be entirely rescued from this realm of corruption and decay frustration and sorrows and grief and we will be blessed for eternity that is simply amazing that's why rejoicing always belongs in the Christian life when everything else falls away and when calamity strikes we along with Habakkuk have something that keeps us strong a relationship with our sovereign God There are things that belong in the Christian life like sorrow and tears and grief and trembling. They have a part. There will be trouble in this life for believers. By by following Jesus, we're not suddenly immune from disaster. But actually there are things that are imposters in the Christian life and they don't belong. Bitterness doesn't belong in the Christian life. A general, unshifting sense of misery doesn't belong in the Christian life. A kind of cold, hard resentment doesn't belong in the Christian life. Sometimes for some people here, you could be considering your Babylonian invasion, as it were, and it's happening right now. Or it could be years and years and years ago, but as yet, you you've not yet made it to the point that Habakkuk got to in chapter 3. And there's something in, in a lot of us that's always prone to, to self-pity. And to what an unbelievably hard life I've had. And don't people know what I've been through? And aren't people aware of this great disaster? And doesn't God even care? And that might start as great wrestling Time itself doesn't heal. Time might just take the edge off that, but we're left with maybe just a sense of bitterness, of anger, 
of misery. And sometimes, if we feel that, we also want people to know. We want other people to know how horrendous things have been and how miserable we are. They're imposters in the Christian life. It's only understandable that we should know a measure of sorrow and tears and grief and trembling. But those other things are imposters. I don't want to freak anyone out right now, but imagine that you had a a close friend who was a confidant, but then after a while you realize they're a complete imposter. They realize they're not who they say they are. Actually, they're completely different from all I thought I knew about them. In some ways, we can, we can live with bitterness. We could live with misery. We could live with anger towards God. We could, we could kind of live in that wrestling mode and just think, well, yeah, that's just a normal part of Christian life, isn't it? Yeah, we've all got our gripes. Or we can say, no, I've seen something better. Those, those things are imposters in a Christian life. And I'm going to, along with Habakkuk, I'm going to rejoice in my God. The sovereign Lord is my strength. Let's find our strength in our sovereign God. Let's soak up and absorb all that God has done, everything we see in the scripture, but throughout history and in our own lives. And let's come to the right conclusions. If God is for us, who can be against us? Nothing can separate us from the love of God that's for us in Christ Jesus. Not even death itself. We have a greater treasure in him that far outweighs however substantial those lights and momentary troubles are that come our way. Let's pray.